1: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Business Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best run business is run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the game changers, I promise you're in exactly the right place. Today's buzz, this is an important one, supply chain health. I don't know if that's an oxymoron. I don't know if you ever thought about the health of your supply chain, and I don't know if there's such a thing as a healthy supply chain, but we're going to find out. Let me get started. As global barriers for business commerce are tumbling down, enterprises have unparalleled opportunities to create unique advantages within their supply chains. The upside is enterprise spending is spanning more diverse geographies and suppliers than ever before. It's all over the map, literally and figuratively. But there is a downside. Supply chains are infested, that's not a good word, infested with supplier risks savings leakages, ooh, and procurement inefficiencies. And the other bad news is that these often go undetected. They're happening, and you don't even know it. So a couple of questions on the table today. Can cutting-edge analytics and real-time supplier visibility help you mitigate the risks as well as drive trusted and confident spending decisions? That's the good stuff, and that's where we're trying to help you get. I have a panel of two experts today. They're going to be working really hard for the time but I know they're up to the task. First up, I'd like to welcome Rahul Raj. He's a senior manager in the SAP Technology Practice of Deloitte Consulting, and Rahul sent me a fascinating quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, and this quote dates back to 1892 and will you hear what a surprise it is? He said, "It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. Rahul, welcome. How are you today?
2: Fantastic. Thank you, Bonnie. Uh, appreciate you, uh, uh, you know, welcoming me to the show, and we're very excited to have a, a great discussion today.
1: Wonderful. So, uh, Tell me uh, yeah, about thanks thanks this reading. quote.
2: Yeah. yeah <coughs> thanks for reading out that quote. Um, as you noted, you know it's from 1892, and it still resonates over a century later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm a big fan of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, especially, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes' character. Um, and, you know, I was, I was always very enamored with Sherlock Holmes because he was truly the master of taking these bits and pieces of data from, you know, every, every direction and coming and making deductions that no one else would. Everyone had access to those same data points, but he was able to piece them together to actually make sense of it. And I really feel that this quote resonates very well with our topic today because, you know, that's our biggest challenge and the the, the challenge a lot of organizations face today. It's trying to make sense of the data that is available to them and come up with an answer or a lead to help us solve an issue. Or in Sherlock Holmes' case, like a murder mystery, um, and that's what I see organizations up against. Right, so everyone has all the data; uh, they're trying to make sense of it, and we're all trying to help solve a business issue and make forward-looking decisions. And that is the toughest part, and that's what analytics can help you do. Um, you know, there are certain foundational elements which we'll we'll discuss later today that um, you know need to be in place to support the analytics, but. At the heart of it, it's taking those, taking that data and making sense of it, and bringing business value to your organization. So, um, you know, again, thought the quote really resonated with today's topic.
0: Rahul, great quote. And tell me, do you have a favorite adventure of Sherlock Holmes? Is, is there something from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that's your, your favorite short story? Anything that, you, that comes to mind?
2: Um, yeah, the one that I think that the Hounds of Baskerville, Baskerville come to mind. Uh, that was a story I read when I was fairly young and, um, you, you know, it had these uh, images of, of glowing dogs and that kind of, that image kind of stuck to my head. So that's definitely, um, you know, something that stuck with me over the years. And then, of course, more recently, the, the Sherlock Holmes movies, uh, you know, that have been made famous by, um, you know, those, the big uh, Hollywood blockbusters. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, those always come to mind as well.
0: Very interesting. I have to share a little story with you before I introduce our second guest. Many, 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 many years ago, long before you were born, I remember my parents and my sister and I were having dinner at a restaurant on somewhere on the south shore of Long Island. It was a summer night, and we walked back to the car after dinner, and I noticed something very bulky paper very bulky on the ground in the parking lot right next to the tire of my dad's car it's like somebody had dumped this volume this book it turns out it was the collected stories of Sherlock Holmes and it was an anthology the covers were missing but it was in decent shape I picked it up and took it home and I just read it cover to cover it was like somebody said to me young Bonnie it's time for you to read Sherlock Holmes and be amazed anyway interesting story yes
2: yeah, fantastic. Yeah.
0: Yep. Okay. And what did you think of the movies? Were you did they were they true to the uh, to the book? I think so.
2: I mean, uh, you know, the the, the, the uh, level of detail you get in reading a book cannot be compared to what you get in the movies. But you know, I think they they tried to do as much justice as they could to um, you know Sherlock Holmes and and what Sir Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle was trying to represent with with this character.
0: Thank you very much. Nice to meet you, and thanks for being with us. And let's turn to our second guest. He's Kirtan Rai, R-A-I. He's a product marketing lead at SAP in the Procurement and Business Network's line of business. And Kirtan sent me a very interesting quote from Greg Easterbrook. Let me just tell you, Easterbrook, if you don't know, is an American writer, a contributing editor to the New Republic and Atlantic Monthly, and he writes writes an eclectic column, Tuesday morning quarterback on ESPN during NFL season, so he's probably been busy recently. And here's the quote, torture numbers and they will confess to anything. Great quote. Kirtan Rye, welcome. How are you today?
3: I'm doing good, Bonnie. Excited and honored to be a part of the Game Changers show. Thank you for the introduction.
0: You're welcome. So talk to me about this interesting quote. How badly do you have to torture the numbers to get them to confess?
3: Yeah, so the, I I actually found this quote, I actually had no idea about who the author is before I saw the quote, and uh, I actually had to do a little bit of research myself. But uh, to confess, I saw this uh, quote being written in one of these Spend Analytics articles that was published a couple of years back. So that's where I found that very interesting. But to actually explain the quote, I would like to quote an example uh, that's mm-hmm. pretty far fetched from the world of business, but... Uh, I feel it's nevertheless a very compelling case on the insights that numbers hold. So, Bonnie, if you are not aware, uh, the Cricket World Cup wrapped up just a few weeks back in Australia and New Zealand and amidst all that extravaganza of sporting teams coming from all over the world, what was unique in this year's game was a little segment that they showed on TV. So It was was based on win probabilities of uh, competing teams in each match based on pure player statistics. So, for example, say you have uh, England playing against Australia, and uh, at the beginning of the match, they would predict Australia's and England's chances to win uh, based on uh, just three individual performances from the respective teams. so for example, uh, you have the captain of the Australian team, and they would say, uh, say if Michael Clark uh, scores above a certain number and if a middle order uh, player scores above, gets a few big hits at the fag end of the game and so on. Uh, Australia's chances to win would be, say, 90%. And these predictions were based on some number crunching, uh, some team stats, Mm -hmm. some player statistics, and head-on matches between each uh, respective team. So what was interesting was uh, every time the win predictions came true, if these conditions were met, and it was as though that you could stop watching the game and just check if the two or three highlighted players had reached their respective scores, and you Ah. would know who would win for sure. So... uh, uh, I know uh, cricket is not too popular in U.S., but you've seen the if you've seen the movie Moneyball, uh, that's mm-hmm. that starring Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill. You know what I'm of, talking about. Of it.
0: course, that's, yes,
3: yes, yes. So that's that's the that's the power of numbers and analytics. So and when it comes to businesses too, it's not a very different ball game here. In the world of business uh, to commerce, uh, business to business, commerce too, if organizations today had a complete uh, complete view of what they're spending on, uh, in terms of their data in terms of which suppliers they're spending with or what kind of risks they're exposed to and so on, they would be in a lot better position to take informed supply chain decisions, improve their savings for every purchase they make, engage with the right suppliers, and mitigate risks and so on. And that's the context of my quote: Torture the numbers hard and let them do the talking end. But that said... I really like uh, Rahul's quote better than mine. I wish I had
0: uh, that <laughs> Oh, that, that's charming. Uh, I, ha- I have something to add to your quote, Geertin. I looked up uh, statistics don't lie, which uh, people have talked about. Statistics don't lie, people do. That's something that's frequently quoted. But here's another one. There are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. Have you ever heard that one?
3: Yes, yes. I'm going to make a use of that in my next session probably.
0: Well, we're going to invite you back, so you just better start planning for that. I appreciate that. Uh, Rahul, I'm going to go back to you and ask you, we're at that segment of the, the show where I ask you, what's in your cup today? What are you drinking? And I know you just got off a plane last night. Tell us where you are, and is there anything special you're drinking related to where you are right now? Or what will you be drinking after the show?
2: yeah so um yeah thanks for that intro again um, uh, money so yeah i unfortunately i don't have anything interesting in my hands right now i just have some water uh... i am in las vegas i flew in late last night to attend an uh... A, attend a conference so um if if i wasn't in vegas and i had access to this i would be all over dunkin donuts um, dark roast coffee so that's kind of my my latest addiction um, you know, I, I I'm actually hooked on this stuff, and while I'm on the road, I usually do scout out the nearest one for, uh, one to me so I can swing by. Um, it's not healthy at times, as you know mm. how far I go to get this, but I do limit myself to a cup a day, um, so it's not too excessive. And then uh, specifically, what I'll be drinking. After the show, that's actually a dangerous question because, as I mentioned, ooh, I'm I like dangerous today.
0: questions. Go ahead, yeah. tempt I'm, me. I ahead. so no,
2: I'm in Vegas, so you know, mm-hmm. we'll see where the we're, we'll see where the day leads us. And there's, I'm sure, there's a lot of different watering holes where I can stop by and grab a, a, a nice drink here in Vegas. So I'm gonna check that out after after we wrap up the show.
0: Well, you can report back. A question: I'm assuming <laughs> when you said you only had one of these Dunkin' Donuts coffees a day and it's an addiction, you're talking what we used to call high test. You're talking full caffeine right?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. And this is dark rose. So this is not your mild flavored regular coffee. This is strong coffee that, you know, has a kick and, and lasts, um, you know, several hours into the day and gets you through to, I guess, mid afternoon, at least.
0: Going very well. Well, okay. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that you have that self-control. I'm a dark coffee fan as well, but I'll let you in on a little secret and don't tell anybody. When I'm doing SAP radio, and this is my second show already today, they don't let me have caffeine before I go on the air. All I'm allowed to drink is water. You're going to have to figure out why, Rahul, but don't tell anybody, okay? That's just okay. between us. Okay. Yeah. Don't tell anybody. Okay, Kirtan Rai, I can't wait to hear what you're drinking. Tell us something about you. What's in the cup, or what are you planning to drink after the show?
3: Well, Bonnie, at this point, my cup is empty. I'm just uh, keeping myself decaffeinated for the radio show. Uh, But uh, uh, you must know that I just flew into uh, the U.S. just a few days, just yesterday. And right now, uh, I'm in Vegas as well. Uh, I'm I'm not with Rahul, though, but I think we could catch up later on. But uh, haven't really started uh, savoring the coffee of you uh, as uh, as of yet. Uh, but talking about beverages, I am a coffee a coffee person like uh, all of you here. Uh, but I'm at this point I'm just getting used to the coffee that's being served here. My uh, my work day back at home though begins with a cup of strong coffee, and uh, my brew is the traditional Indian filter coffee. Now I'm not sure if you're uh, familiar with that, uh, but here's a little tidbit on that. So, uh, so the general notion uh, about India or, or the, uh, is that India is a tea-drinking country, which it is, no doubt, some of the popular varieties of tea, like um, you have um, Assam tea or Darjeeling tea, which comes from India. But there are also small pockets, uh, especially on the southern side of the country, which is popular for the coffee. And since I come from one of those states, I'm really particular about the taste. So the filter coffee is uh, something of a black, uh, it's, it's a strong coffee decoction mixed with frothy milk, and it's a whole ritual in itself in the way it's uh, prepared and served. So uh, maybe you should go to a South Indian home when you're in India and see how it's actually done. So in the way it's filtered, the way it's prepared and poured, and uh, the most interesting part is the way it's served. So you have uh, the coffee actually placed in a steel tumbler, and the tumbler is placed upside down with the coffee and into a saucer. So. Uh, we we'll have to gently lift the cup to get the coffee in the saucer and take it in. So it's it's a sight. It's a sight, and it's life-changing <laughs> also in terms of the taste for me. And uh, that said, uh, I'm really have to get used to the coffee here uh, because jet lag is kicking in, and uh, I'm really hoping that uh, you could make some good coffee suggestions.
0: Very interesting. I was going to ask you if coffee with that type of a ritual, that formal ritual, was an art or a science, but when you mentioned the tumbler upside down having to scoop up the coffee from the saucer, I think we're in the realm of science now. Would you say so, Kirtan?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a science. Yeah, people take a lot of pride in the way they prepare their coffee in terms of the blend that they use, in terms of, uh, I mean, uh, even the way it's poured. in some places, they would like to pour it from a really... I uh, I mean like at least a meter away from the saucer, so that the milk is frothing up and uh yeah from the weight and uh how it's served as well, we did that you don't find it in a lot of restaurants uh here in in India as well at uh, at least the modern ones uh, but it's mostly served in the traditional breakfast joints uh, I think uh, when you are down there, you must definitely take a look.
0: We certainly will. Thank you very much. Guess what? You two have earned a break to sip whatever is in your cup. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Very pleased today to be speaking with two of my most polite guests ever. You two are real gentlemen. I'm very impressed. We're talking with Rahul Raj, Senior Manager in the SAP Technology Practice of Deloitte Consulting, and Kirtan Rai, a Product Marketing Lead at SAP in the Procurement and Business Networks Lines of Business. That's a long title for a business card, Kirtan. That's a big business card. But I'm sure you fit the title very well. Our topic today is an interesting one. We're talking about supply chain health and basically managing suppliers and enterprise spending, letting them... The numbers do the talking, and that's what it always comes down to is the numbers. So, we're going to have a very exciting roundtable. I can predict that with certainty with Rahul Raj and Kirtan Rai right after the break. So, don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Brad out.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Business has never been more complex than in today's networked economy. To thrive, companies must adapt and innovate. They must harness the wealth of information now available to enable smarter decision-making. They must enable effective collaboration among employees and with their customers and suppliers. They must optimally deploy enterprise resources, and they must make this simple. Join our experts as they discuss how your business leaders can drive innovation that positions your company for continued success. Business Innovation with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to business innovation with Game Changers.
0: Welcome back. speaking with Rahul Raj and Kirtan Rai. We're ready for our roundtable segment. We've got a lot of work to do, a lot of territory to cover, and I know my guests are ready because they sent me very copious notes before the show. So let's get down to business on supply chain health. Um, I'm going to ask my guests later on in the show if they think that's an oxymoron. Is there such a thing as as a healthy Bill of Health for your supply chain, are we there yet? But we'll talk about that later. Here's the opening note from Rahul Raj. He says, as a prerequisite to enabling cutting-edge analytics to gain visibility into your supplier base, an organization should invest in optimizing the vendor master by performing data cleansing. Sounds very powerful. Rahul, why don't you expand this, please?
2: Yeah. So, uh, um, so, so, Bonnie, the, the one thing I wanted to focus on before we dove directly into analytics and, and the benefits and the value that an organization can gain from the analytics was to actually uh, talk about some of the foundational elements that need to be in place before um, you can actually start to have analytics start working for you.
0: Sorry. So, go ahead.
2: Uh, the biggest challenge that I see organizations face from um, leveraging analytics is that their their foundational master data, their transactional data, and their vendor master data is not um, ready to have analytics performed on it, right? So I think, um, it, you know, in nine out of ten cases, wherever I've done these kinds of projects before, um, you, you know, there needs to be an investment in optimizing the vendor master and the supplier master, um, and that can be done in, in several different ways, right? So, um, and I'll talk through some of those. So, so the first one is is really deduplicate deduping your vendor master records. What what mm-hmm. happens is over time, organizations, um, you know, there's there's people all across the organization that that are trying to interact with the supply chain and, and suppliers, and they're putting in their requests, and because of um, you know, lack of data quality or, or lack of data quality standards. Uh, a lot of duplicate vendor records get created. A lot of duplicate supplier records get created, and that's due to either the way an end user or um, a business user is entering that information, or potentially based on how they how a supplier may be called in different parts of the country, different parts of the globe, um, and that actually ends up polluting your vendor master and your supplier master. Um, Additional things to think about is is validating key required data, banking information, remittance information, diversity, uh, regional information about a supplier. All those data elements need to be captured and updated so that when you are starting to report out and you are starting to to have analytics work and, and building that upon it, you're actually reporting out in cor- uh, accurate information about your supplier base. And then, uh, last but not least, the other thing that, that we should also think about are, are the, the parent-child relationships within your supplier master. So through acquisitions and divestitures and also, um, you know, just over time, uh, organizations, um, you know, go through a lot of change, and, and we need, as uh, Suppliers go through chains. so an organization really needs to keep up with, with those changes so that you can truly reflect the spend you have with a particular supplier and use that uh, when it comes time to negotiating and uh, leveraging that, that purchasing power. So updating those parent-child relationships in your supplier master are also vital. Um, so, you know, this is obviously a lot of tedious work. And yes. it can be a large investment, but one thing that I also recommend as part of these is to leverage established third-party resources. Right, so there are third-party services, organizations out there like B and B that have the tools and services to accelerate this activity. And um, you, you know, so um, absolutely don't recommend doing it by yourselves. Get the help you need. Accelerate this. Uh, Get this done as quickly as you can so you can move on to the more value-generating initiatives such as analytics and and visibility into your supply chain. Um, So really it boils down to, um, you know, if you have garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you've got incorrect Mm -hmm. data, uh, unstructured data, you're not going to get the analytics that you're looking for at the At the um, as the end result, and so investing in this as a prerequisite to that, I feel is a very critical
0: element. Rahul, I have a question for you. If you yes. keep up the same methods, if your people, your staff, your people working on the vendor list, for example, and the vendor master, if they keep up the same bad habits of not checking to see are there really four names for A to Z automotive already in the database, and they keep doing it, and you've invested all this time and money in, a, as you suggested, a third-party outsource who comes in and cleans it up and gives you a really tight, really squeaky clean, hopefully healthy supply chain method master, isn't it going to happen over and over again? Do you have to go, is it wise, in other words, to go back to the methods and retrain the input people to do a cleaner lookup into what's there before they just haphazardly throw in a business name? What are your thoughts?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, that was going to be another point that I brought up, um, uh, I guess, further along. One of the things that we recommend in addition to this one-time cleansing effort is to establish governance structures and governance mechanisms, mm-hmm. along with uh, optimized processes, where you can prevent this from happening. Right. So, if yes. you go, if you, just to your point, if you go through this lengthy exercise and in investment to to cleanse the data, it really is um, it's going to defeat the purpose if you don't have um, you know sound business processes that prevent this from happening in the future, as well as a governance structure that can push back and a governance mechanism that has the mandate to push back when suppliers and additional uh, requests are coming in for for information that is either going going to further uh, pollute your uh, supplier master or Mm -hmm. um, cause more rework to be done later on. So yeah, I think that's a very, very valid point. I mean, that goes hand in hand with this more tactical one-time cleansing effort.
0: Thank you. Makes sense. Kirtan Rai, I want to hear what you have to say. Thoughts on cleansing your master vendor list?
3: Yes, uh, Bonnie. That's one of the essential prerequisites that uh, a company should have while uh, embarking on a spend visibility or a spend analytics journey. So uh, in fact, adding on to Raffle's point, I think that is uh, just to give out an example of how this whole thing pans out, right? When you have a number of... uh, suppliers being called out differently when you don't have a consistent uh, supplier taxonomy within your organization. So here, uh, let's take an example of, uh, say, a business uh, a business that's based out of U.S. probably and then with headquarters in U.S. and subsidiary companies in multiple locations in uh, U.S. as well as outside. Now, say that the company spends about $100 million on procuring chemicals that goes into their products. So what... Uh, Because of the nature of that commodity, you would have, uh, say, very few suppliers supplying that chemical. So what you would have is essentially everyone in the organization that's buying the same chemical from the same supplier from different locations. But since the spending is so decentralized and they are called out in multiple different names, uh, you would have no uh, visibility on that critical piece of information. And what happens at the end of the day is you continue to procure the same chemical from the same supplier, but at multiple different prices. And that's, that's big savings uh, leakage going on there. <clears throat> so, for example, if you were to consolidate all of that spending uh, under a single supplier uh, and you know where the linkages are, who the parent company is, and if, if you're dealing with subsidiaries and so on, you know exactly how much business you're doing with the supplier. And that gives you the negotiation clout for better prices. And uh, it's not just better prices. You're also uh, then on the bargaining table for better delivery rates, better, uh, better delivery performance, better supplier performance, better payment terms, and so on. So just to put the numbers in perspective, so even conservatively speaking, what you've observed is that companies tend to realize about 2 to 4% in cost savings annually from such exercises of supplier rationalization and uh, full visibility into the supplier org. And... Uh, If you are talking about two to four percent, that's a neat two to four million dollars on a on Mm -hmm. a spending base of hundred million. So multiply that with the full spending amount that would be uh, in a in an average uh, mid-sized company, say two to five billion dollars, and then you'd have the full ROI of the solution of this initiative, and that's the business value that we are talking about, and that's the business opportunity that companies are missing out on by not investing in 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 spend analytics or in numbers. So what we see, uh, on the contrary, that's going on in a lot of companies is exactly what Rahul put forth in his quote from Sherlock Holmes, is that they're using their numbers to suit the theories rather than uh, the other way around. It's more or less like putting the cart before the horse. So, uh, as per even conservative estimates, we see uh, we uh, assume that companies, because of lack of uh, visibility into their suppliers and not just suppliers, into the overall spending, into what they're spending uh, on on commodities or services, they would be bleeding about a billion, a multi-hundred billion dollars uh, mm. on an annual basis every year. So that's a big number. That's a collectively big number and something that can be easily addressed, but uh, yeah, with the right steps. And definitely one of the steps is uh, on rationalizing the vendor master.
0: Thank you, Kirtan. I'm looking at your notes, and I see an interesting statistic here from an SAP benchmarking study. I don't think you mentioned this yet. You say the enterprise challenge in gaining good visibility on spending. Eighty-six percent of enterprises studied say spend visibility is important. Okay, so that means most of them get it. They understand the concept. Wonderful. But less than 40 percent of those companies have good visibility on enterprise-wide spending. That's uh, drastic. It's almost 50%, but it's really still low. How big is that? What's going to take for that gap to be closed, Kirtan?
3: Yeah, so that's that's a very scary conundrum, actually, what the uh, yeah. statistics say. In, in fact, uh, yeah, everybody realizes, everybody knows that it's important, but uh, very, very few companies, in fact, even the 40%, were just the ones that had elementary. Visibility, and we are not even talking about the kind of visibility that is required for an enterprise. So, the actual, if, if you were to just say the end number of enterprises that had uh, the kind of visibility that is required, it could, the number would be still lower. But yes, uh, there are because that's because there is a number of challenges that uh, enterprises face while embarking on spend visibility, like. Uh, like Rahul said, like right, the first thing is uh, the data itself is generated from multiple different uh, source systems within the organization, so it makes uh, it almost impossible for them to create a single source of truth for analysis and uh, just to give you an example, a typical organization a five to ten billion organization, you would have a data sources based in in dozens uh, i think it's twenty five to thirty source systems that are based out of various different geographies, various different uh, office locations, and each of them is generating. Hundreds and millions of dollars of worth of spent data every year, and the very the very task of aggregating all of that data is so humongous that it takes months uh, and quarters, in fact, to aggregate all of that. And then there is a the whole task of getting them analyzed. So one aspect is that yeah, data is all over the place and it's disparate. And the second thing is, uh, even if you aggregate all of that data, it's not in a single taxonomy. So you'd have uh, one thing is suppliers, you would not know supplier dynamics at play. So you'd have the same supplier being called off uh, 10 different names. But at the same time, even commodities, uh, what you're buying, if you're buying nuts, if you're buying bowls, if you're buying laptops, or uh, everything else, IT accessories, they would also be called out in multiple different names. And uh, typically organizations don't have a single taxonomy in place to uh, actually rationalize the commodity. So you would have uh, the same commodity also being called out in 10 different ways. And with all of that, with all of that in place, it's really, even if the data is aggregated, companies find it a really uphill task to actually analyze the data. And uh, the other aspect is, and this is something uh, far fetched for companies for uh, uh, who are even considering, who have even embarked on the first two steps of, uh, of uh, creating the standard taxonomy and aggregating the data, then really comes the part where you actually put some external data and uh, complement the existing data with external third-party sources like D&B, or uh, in addition to that, uh, price indices in, uh, or benchmarking data from industry sources and so on. So without all of these elements in place, companies, real companies, find it really difficult to find any insights out of the spend visibility or spend analytics mm-hmm. exercise, and uh, this would be a short run exercise. So they would aggregate, they would... Uh, analyze it for a few weeks and then say, okay, so we've, uh, we've seen what's there to it, and I don't think we can run this for another two months because just simply there's nothing I can draw out of this. So these are really short-lived exercises when they do it by themselves unless uh, there are some essential elements that uh, need to go into it are addressed at the outset of a spend visibility exercise.
0: Thank you, Kirtan. Rahul, I want to hear what you have to say. We've got a lot of uh, new information on the table here. Thoughts?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, again, I, I agree with what Geertan is saying about not having that that uh, category taxonomy in place that's used consistently. Um, I have been at organizations um, where, you know, they have a category taxonomy in place. Um, however, not everyone is aligned to that. Um, one of the key one of the key things that um, another key thing I wanted to talk about was, um, you know. Category alignment. So, uh, spend according to category alignment. Um, too often, we see where um, you know you have a great sourcing organization. You have category managers that work very hard to um, establish preferred um, vendor networks, preferred supplier networks, where you know they have determined through um, you know long long drawn out negotiations with these suppliers that. Um, you know, these are going to be the preferred suppliers where we're going to funnel our spend because this is where we're going to get the most value and the, the biggest, um, uh, you know, discounts and the biggest, uh, uh, you know, bang for our buck. Uh, however, it's trying to operationalize that to the downstream systems that. Is where, where the gap is, right? So essentially, they've established these great networks. They, Hey, we're, gonna, we're going to we're going we're going to funnel all our chemical spend with you know these ten suppliers. Uh, however, trying to get that filtered through to the rest of the organization is a big challenge. And this is where um, I feel that that organizations really need to um, you know again focus their efforts so that they are able to take advantage of. Some of the analytics and some of the upfront work that's happening um, and aligning these suppliers to the category strategies uh, will enable them to do that. And, um, you know, I, I know oftentimes it needs um, a technology to help enable that, but once you have that technology enabled to, um, I guess, redirect your spend towards your preferred network, um, that really starts that chain to then allow us to, um, you know, align suppliers by their categories, funnel that spend operationally, and then have that pump back in through to the analytics. And then then you can really start that, that cycle for, um, you know, taking advantage of, um, you know, what the analytics are telling you and really funneling your, your spend towards, you know, a subset of your vendor base. Um, the, the other thing I, I do also want to mention is, um, it can be, it can seem like a daunting task, right, to go and align all this, um, you know, to a standard set of categories. Uh, what I also see organizations do too often is trying to get it perfect, right? So mm-hmm. there will be times when you've got it 85% correct, but you can't crack them, the balance of the 15. Well, 85% is a great starting point, right, in spend yes. analytics and uh, supplier visibility is not a one-and-done exercise. It's cyclical. It happens year over year. It happens over uh, many different periods. So, if you start with 85, um, you can—that's a great starting point—and you can kind of build on that over the subsequent periods and years to get to where you want to be, um, you, you know, in the future. So, I think uh, I think that's something that organizations typically. Um, you know, they do, it's paralysis by analysis, right? They don't, they fail to kind of over, um, they fail to overcome that, hey, we, we can't get this 100% correct and, and kind of struggle to, to get beyond that. So I always encourage that, hey, it's a great starting point. Let's continue from here and really take advantage of what we already have.
0: Rahul, 85% sounds like an amazing starting point. It sounds to me like something you would aspire to that would take years to achieve. And what do they say? It's good enough? 85% sounds amazing. Do you know a company that would sniffle at that and say, oh, we have to do so much better? I don't know. When you're talking big numbers like you and and Kirtan are talking, that seems like a huge amount of money. What do you think?
2: Rahul? Uh, Yeah, so um, I think that question was directed to me. So I I threw 85% out as a number. Um, It's going to vary by organization, so 85% is a fantastic number. Uh, But I I guess the point that I was trying to make is if there is a significant amount of your category strategy that is aligned to your spend and you can start to get analytics out of it, then it's better to start somewhere than to start, Mm -hmm. um, you know, nowhere. So I think that's the point that I was trying to make.
0: Good. Thank you. Kirtan, I'm looking at your notes, and you gave me two interesting examples uh, using spend analytics. These are no-name companies, but why don't you throw some numbers out for us in terms of percents of savings realized. What do you think?
3: In fact, when when we speak to companies, uh, the first question that we get asked, uh, Bonnie, is like – what are the areas that we'll find the benefit of spend visibility in? Can you list out a few? So my answer is really it's how you make use of that spend analytics data. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are multiple different ways in which organizations can put spend analytics to use. So uh, it could be the easy ones, you know, as the quick-hit opportunities, ones that are visible to you right from day one or month one, uh, which would be in the form of savings opportunities, like the example that I gave to you about the chemical company. And then there are opportunities which uh, which start to appear once you are fairly mature in your uh, spend analytics cycle which uh, uh, emerge in the form of managing working capital better, and then there is uh, use cases for improving supplier performance and these are not just and it's not just limited to these it's uh, I can go I can go on and on regarding this and uh, but another important aspect that companies do leverage spend analytics for is uh, to drive sustainability and diversity initiatives in their supply chain. So the use cases are multiple, and I've just listed a couple of them just for your reference. So taking them, I would like to take a few minutes into, uh, into explaining some of these uh, case studies that we have seen. So, Please do, yes. Example. Yeah. So the first one was an example of uh, a large multinational conglomerate. So they, uh, as in the nature of the business, they operate dozens of subsidiary companies across the globe, So which meant that at uh, any point in time they would be transacting with about – thousands, hundreds, and thousands of suppliers that provided, again, hundreds and thousands of commodities. And uh, at any given point of time, they would not have a visibility on who's purchasing what because uh, for all practical purposes, these subsidiary companies operated as uh, independent business units. But when they finally went on to the task of aggregating and managing all of that spend, what they realized was uh, they had multiple different payment terms for the same suppliers across multiple subsidiaries. So by payment terms, I mean... Uh, how long you take to pay the supplier once you are invoiced? So we would have one company, uh, one of the subsidiary companies, that would pay their suppliers within the 50 days of invo- 15 days of invoice receipt. That's pretty soon actually. And then another one would pay in about 30 days, and someone else would pay within 20 and 45 days, and so on. So it was all over the place, and you're talking about the same supplier that's repeated across the subsidiaries. So by negotiating, by when they had a consolidated view uh, of all of these suppliers and the payment terms, what they went about doing was uh, negotiated a, uh, an average payment term with uh, with the suppliers who so brought it up to, say, 30 or 45 days. So it was, for some case, for some of the suppliers, for some of the subsidiaries, it meant extending their DPO. For some of them, it meant reducing. So, uh, but overall... What resulted was they were able to hold on to their cash for much longer, so you never had companies that were paying much early in the payment cycle and uh, extend their days payable outstanding. So that, that's that's something that any company that you talk to would uh, care a lot for because uh, companies like to hold on to their cash for longer because that's raised interest and that's uh, that exercise in itself and the company used spend visibility in a number of other ways. But just the activity of averaging out the payment terms has resulted in uh, in uh, a savings of about a couple of million dollars, and and that's that's like an ROI of say 10x or 15x over what they've invested in spend visibility, and this is happening year over year, so that's that's very strong, compelling use case that uh, mm-hmm. in the field of payments, uh, in the field of how you extend your payments or how you manage your working capital better using spend analytics. Uh, in, this, in, uh, in, in in another case, which is a complete contrast so in, to, into the working capital example, we had a, we had a, a hardware manufacturer, and uh, once they consolidated all of their spend, they identified the supplier base that provided over 5,000 essential parts to the company. And once they had that, uh, what they did was cross-check that if that existing supplier base could also cater to some of the other categories of spending. So in doing that they identified that more than 2500 parts that could be additionally sourced from the existing suppliers uh, rather than going with one off providers so you really had an op- a case where the company was able to consolidate all of their spend with their existing preferred suppliers rather than going with the long tail suppliers uh, for an additional category of for additional 2500 parts within the company the identified cost savings again here was about 15% uh, and this is just and i'm not talking about Uh, uh, some exaggerated numbers here. These are standard numbers that you'd see, that you'd you'd come across very often in the spending analytics space because the savings are there for the taking. It's just how how well the company makes use of the data, how clinical and how disciplined they are in in their approach and uh, how well they set their objectives in terms of uh, uh, leveraging that data. So I could go on and on, but probably uh, these two are some classic examples. And I just wanted to highlight these because they highlight, because they talk about different use cases, one in terms of payments, other in terms of savings. So, uh, yes, some compelling use cases that we have uh, in terms of spend analytics usage.
0: Thank you, Kirtan. Good to know. Rahul, any thoughts on these use cases? You have any other examples you'd like to share?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, there, there's a couple that that I'll throw out there. Uh, one is uh, related to uh, parametric pricing. Um, so, um, like on average, uh, up to a third of a man, uh, uh, parts, uh, a third of the parts that a manufacturer procures um, each year um, are new, but they differ only in in very small specific ways from the earlier versions of the parts that they used to use. Um, so if a company that has this great modeling ability and, and has the ability to identify these discrete parameters of change um, and and they can use these parameters um, and, and the changes to determine what the net price change should be right that expedites the negotiating process and, and helps the company avoid overpayment so essentially you know what's changing you know what the cost of that change is and therefore you can uh, more efficiently negotiate that that um, uh, you know the overall pricing, and because the parametric pricing focuses on, on reducing the number of data points under consideration, it's a great example of how supply chain analysis can be um, you know an effective way to um, generate value. Um, another example is through M and A integration. So so very often. Uh, we see two companies in the same industry that come together. Um, they have essentially you, you know, similar businesses, and they are probably acquiring similar parts and materials. However, the way they've classified and the way they identify those materials internally within each of the companies is most likely different and most likely have different price points. Um, so... If, and if each legacy company kind of continues to use their own internal part numbers, um, that that difference and that disparity can persist long after the merger. Um, so mm-hmm. analytics can, can use OEM product codes uh, to uh, identify these redundancies so that the buyer can rationalize um, and can kind of align on these different part numbers and can rationalize their procurement and save money. So, so those are a couple of other examples, um, you know, parametric pricing through a- an M&A integration um, where you can really leverage supply chain analytics to, um, to you know, to, to generate value that otherwise would have been very cumbersome to unearth.
0: Thank you, Rahul. I have a question for both of you, dialing us back to the beginning of the conversation. My question is, At what point should a company be on the alert in terms of their growth, their maturity, as they get bigger and things get more complex and they start to expand? Is there a a red flag, a red alert, if you will, that says to them, whoops, we are getting into spaghetti here. This is tangled. It's a mess. We'd better stop, look, and listen, get our third-party person in, uh, get a third-party company in, clean this up, move forward. At what point should a company be aware that they've gone too far without paying attention to governance, as you mentioned, Rahul? So is there a way a company can say, we're growing, we're going too fast, damn it, we're getting into bad territory, we have to stop it right now and do better? How does a company know where that point is, Rahul?
2: yeah I think any time that they're starting to invest more in uh more people and more energy into identifying these so I've seen companies as small as you know a billion dollar company that um has started going down this process right and it's because they knew that they were spending too much time uh aware- aw- away from their core competency of 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 the business they were doing and more focused on um uh, you know doing data maintenance or, or running analytics to determine kind of what they need to be doing in the future. So at the moment, they aren't able to anticipate what's coming down the line is probably too late already. So they really should have been looking at this uh, well in advance of that. So if, 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 you, if you don't have this, this notion of a glass pipeline where you can really see, um, you know, have visibility into your supply chain, and you're investing a lot of money and resources trying to, to go look into that glass pipeline, I think that's the point. I don't think there's a, a, a tangible number that says if your spend goes over this threshold is when you need to start looking at these things. It's, I've seen very, very small companies, um, you know, facing these challenges and undertaking such such uh, initiatives.
0: Thank you. Excuse me. I had to take my headset off and cough there for a second. Kirtan, like to hear what you have to say. What's the tipping point? How does a company know? You agree?
3: Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, uh, Bonnie. So that's a question that yeah comes across pretty often uh, from a lot of companies. Are we the right size, or when is the good, good time for us to start on uh, spend analytics? So the way it's, it's, so that's a perception issue, uh, Bonnie. So the way spend visibility is needs to be pursued is. At least the way it is done right now, with companies like to do it after they have invested a couple of uh, millions of dollars into their supply chain and everything into their procurement processes. But really, spend visibility forms the foundation of good spend management within the organization, and that should be the first process that you should be investing in, while venturing into investing into other areas within the ecosystem, because the decisions that come out of spend visibility are uh, you should are the ones that you should be basing basing your uh, uh, further uh, processes on, like sourcing or procurement or so on. And that should be the starting point of analyzing where are we spending, how do we spend, and uh, which suppliers are we spending with. And that really forms the foundation. So, but that said, your yeah, companies do not see an immediate ROI from uh, spend analytics at the outset. So generally, they tend to invest in other areas first, get their sourcing act right, get their procurement, supply chains, and other, other things right. And only, only then they start when they're Little far up in the game, and then they realize, Oh my god, so we have too many of these processes right now going on, and then uh, we'll have to take a step back and look what's really going on in our uh, spending data. So, uh, yeah, that's no really that's not really a tipping point, but I would, uh, the recommended part for organizations is when they're considering uh, other areas within spend management, like sourcing or procurement, is the time that they also need to invest in spend visibility as well, because all of these go hand in hand. Uh, actually, it begins with spent visibility, and then moves uh, downstream into other process areas. So, uh, uh, I think if you're if you're asking the question that uh, when is the right time, probably you're already late into the game. So you've not uh-huh. already thought about it.
0: <clears throat> That's what I was looking for. Thank you. Guess what? We have six minutes till the end of the show, and it's time for us to segue into the crystal ball predictions round. I warned you in advance, so I know you're both ready. And thank you both for what I consider to be a a brilliant conversation. Uh, You certainly both came prepared and wonderful insights. I was telling our engineer this is like taking a class from the two of you. I've learned a lot, and I know our listeners will as well. So my question is, let's start with Rahul Raj at Deloitte Consulting. Rahul, can you fast-forward this conversation to the year 2020 or what time frame do you prefer in the future and what will be different if we met again at that future date? So I'm going to give you a full, why don't you take a full two minutes for predictions and if you don't have a lot to predict, you can use it to highlight some of the key points you mentioned during the show. Go ahead, Rahul.
2: Yep. Sure. Yeah. So um, I, I think we've all noted today that there's, you know, currently there's considerable energy and focus on today's topic, right? And as, as Githa, Githa noted. You know, 85% of organizations know that this is an important um, initiative. But, you know, they're trying to crack this nut, right? Um, But, uh, you know, at the same time, I believe um, there are companies such as SAP and other services companies that um, also recognize this. And so over time, as as new technologies are being introduced, right, and I I don't think it's in the five-year horizon. It's probably sooner than that. Analytics is no longer an afterthought, right? Previously, it used to be where it would be, hey, you need to go and implement a supply chain solution, and oh, by the way, you know, here's some reports that you can run, um, uh, you know, to, to to report what's going on. Um, however, I, I don't believe it's it's an afterthought anymore. These analytics are being introduced as foundational elements and are being kind of touted as the reason you want to be investing in a technology, or a service, or a transformation. Um, So I think that's already happening. Uh, Companies that are offering these technologies and services are addressing data quality, supply-based transparency, and uh, analytics. Right. So so these are all coming bundled and integrated into these offerings. So as over time as organizations shift from the traditional way they've implemented these technologies and, and go to the cloud, these will all be part and parcel of what they're going to get, and so I really see that visibility in building this glass pipeline is something that will be become readily available, and that this struggle that we have uh, will, will um, y- you know will not be as big as a struggle, and uh, we don't need to make these massive investments to achieve what we 're trying to get to at the end. you know there was a time when you know standing up the infrastructure to host an application would take take months on end to, um, you know, stand up. But now with cloud offerings, this happens in a matter of days. You know, so I see that kind of speed and availability and visibility in today's topic being something that becomes a reality, um, you you know, a few years down the line. Hopefully before 2020, but if not, then by 2020.
0: Thank you very much. And I saved two minutes for you, Kirtan Rai. Why don't you give us your predictions, please? Go.
3: Okay, Bonnie, so my crystal ball doesn't predict as far as 2020, so what I'm going to say is uh, what we likely predict in the next, in the short to near term, in the midterm future. So uh, one thing that I'd like to talk about uh, in, the, in the way this shaping up is uh, we covered how, a little bit about how analytics can help on the savings front, but there's also the aspect of analytics driving risk management, and that's one area that is coming up in a big way in many places. So some of the early adopters today are taking the numbers game a step further and are now using analytics uh, that uh, essentially allows them to track their suppliers on a real-time basis because uh, what we have spoken so far is about backward-looking data, uh, which, which is great but is no longer sufficient if an organization has to keep pace with the changing business environment dynamics. So, but with real-time risk visibility, uh, organizations are in a position to know when exactly an event occurs uh, in their supply chain and uh, more importantly, what's the likelihood of that affecting their suppliers, and not just the suppliers, but also the supplier supplier, and so on, because because you're all part of a big value chain, and event and a butterfly effect in any any part of your supply chain has uh, could have a, a, a drastic effect on your overall business in terms of brand, in terms of revenue loss, and so on. So that's that's one area that we are increasingly seeing uh, emerging in this area is uh, real time risk visibility on suppliers. So, and it's not just real-time risk visibility.
0: It's Here tonight, about- I'll give you ten, ten more seconds. We're almost out of time. Go ahead, wrap fast.
3: All right. So that's uh, so that's, that's about mm-hmm. it in terms of real-time and predictive analytics. So that's uh, one area that we're seeing it increasingly growing, Thank and you. Uh, probably in the next five years, we would be talking at a much uh, higher level in this domain.
0: Thank you, and I hope we'll have a chance to have another conversation sooner than five years. Rahul Raj at Deloitte, Kirtan Rai at SAP. Thank you both so much. I hope you had a, an interesting conversation with each other and a little bit with me. Uh, I'm certainly grateful to both of you for stepping in with both feet and sharing so, much, so many great insights and so much of your great expertise with us. I have to do some shout-outs to Jeannie Trin at Ariba, an SAP company, for sponsoring this series. Jeannie is in Las Vegas right now, so I'm sure both of you are going to run into her soon or later, you know, what stays in Vegas. No, never mind, we won't do that one. Uh, Deloitte, we have some had some support from three ladies at Deloitte getting this all together. Estelle Van Leerty, Helen Thomas, Carla Neal, thank you so much, and a shout-out to our engineer, Brad, and the Business Channel team. I'll be back tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, with another edition of Coffee Break with Game Changers. See you then. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Business Innovation with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again, Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.